Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Bullet Catcher, Season 2, Episode 9. Opening night. The Irregulars are slow to get going the following morning. The first of them are just making their ways out of their Vardos when I return from my run. Mal watches them from the steps of her place, a mug of coffee cupped in her palms, like a gargoyle gazing down on a churchyard, judging all the sinners passing through the doors. I only notice I've been looking for Knack when I hear Mal barking at me from across the lot. I jog over to her and she greets me with a scowl. No training today, she says. Why not? I ask, secretly relieved. She looks up at me like she can't believe such a stupid question would cross my lips. Cause I said so is why. She sloshes her coffee on the ground by my feet. You got a bad habit of getting too familiar with people. It's all those confounded questions you're always asking is the problem. It makes it so a person feels like they gotta give you some kind of answer. Is this about what you said last night? Mal jumps to her feet and smacks me across the face with the back of her hand. That's the last question I want to hear out of your mouth for a damn good long while. Then she marches up the steps and disappears into her vardo slamming the door behind her. I'm left out in the cold with my cheeks stinging, and an even worse part of me aching for how I disappointed Mal, without knowing how. And even that aching feeling is confirmation that Mal's right. I do have a habit of getting too familiar with people. I let it happen with Lobo and Cass, and look what happened. It's only after I bathe and my cheeks stop smarting that I allow myself to admit that it's nice having a day off. I wander into the big top and stand off to the side to watch the Irregulars finish setting up and go through their last warm-ups before their big opening night. Rado sits hunched over an old scarred table, playing with a deck of cards. He fans them like a peacock, unfurling its tail feathers, before folding them back into the palm of his hand. His lips are moving as if he's talking to someone 
but no sound comes out. And it takes me a moment to realize he's going through his routine, talking to the person he'll call up on stage this evening to assist him. He shuffles the cards by flicking them one by one from one hand to the other. They twirl through the air like saucers before landing safely back into his palms. He'd make a good bullet catcher. And then, as if he can sense me staring, he looks up at me, winks, and suddenly the deck of cards in his hand bursts into flames. He shakes out his hand, scattering ash across the tabletop. My eyes must go wide with the trick because he laughs again, before revealing another deck of cards and once again losing himself in his routine. I walk around the perimeter of the tent, nearly hidden in the blades of shadow cast by the makeshift bleachers and equipment that's been hastily pushed aside until they can decide where to store it. Backstage, I spot the basket I hid in when I first stumbled in here to escape the gunslingers. The balloon has been rolled up. One of the irregulars notices me, looking at it, and says, We usually offer balloon rides during the day to earn a little extra scratch, but the weather's been too lousy lately. If it's for rides, what's with all the armor plating? It's an old war balloon. How to make them bulletproof, didn't they? I head up to the bleachers to get a view of the ring. Far up near the top of the tent, Zephyr sits on a small platform atop a tall wooden pole. From where he sits, legs dangling off the side, he watches his sister, Eos, as she balances on a wire, suspended between the first platform and another some 30 feet away. Her toes curl around the wire, so narrow that I can only see it when it trembles with Eos's movements, a strand of silver spiderweb catching the sun. Zephyr claps rhythm with his hands while Eos dances on the wire. She twirls and leaps and swings, her face pinched in concentration. And when she approaches the platform, Zephyr stands and reaches out his hands and takes her to safety. And then, without even a moment's rest, they leap out onto the wire and begin to dance together. Nack emerges from behind a curtain, draped across the back of the center ring, opposite the bleachers. Nack is dressed in a too-small tuxedo, the sleeves ending halfway down the wrists and the tails of his jacket dangling comically behind him. I've never quite seen him like this, all done up, or at least trying to appear that way, with his hair pomaded and his whiskers trimmed. He looks hopeless and handsome. He steps toward the empty bleachers and throws his arms out wide as if greeting the audience. He dips into a bow before throwing his hat into the air and catching it on his head. When he spots me, hiding up in the bleachers, he takes a step back, as though he's shocked at the sight of me. And then he gives me that little wave he always gives when he spots me from across the way, as though he's not sure if he's just imagining me. I step out into the light, and he smiles at me. I thought you and Mal would be doing your thing, he says. Not today. He looks at his shoes and kicks a clump of dirt. Well, it's good to see you during the day. I feel like the only times I see you is first thing in the morning and at dinner. What do you two get up to anyway? She's teaching me how to kill the people I hate. His eyebrows go up when I say that. He screws his mouth into a look of uncertainty and then just says, Ah, I guess that's why you two always look so serious. He stands there in silence for a few moments and then says, You know, 
When I lost my parents, I can't tell you how angry I was. But take it from me, that it won't always hurt as bad as it hurts now. It's none of your business. He nods. I suppose you're right about that. Doesn't stop me worrying about you, though. Nobody asked you to do that. It occurs to me that if he'd said all this last night, when the fire was burning and there was dancing and music, and we were alone on the steps of my Vardo, it wouldn't piss me off the way it does right now. But now all I feel is anger rising in my throat, and because I think I might say something I won't be able to take back, and because it seems like, against all odds, this beautiful man might actually like me, I squeeze my hands into fists and very carefully say, I hope you have a good show tonight. I turn to walk away, but Nax stops me. Wait, are you coming? I stop and stare at my shoes, not daring to turn and look him in the eye. We'll see, I tell him. If I'm not busy, that is. I hope you make it. I'll save you the top seat in the corner of the bleachers. It's a good spot to watch, and you won't be crowded by people up there. I probably won't come. The seat will be there, just in case. I really don't mean to go to the show. I have every intention of going for a run or heading up to the rookery by myself to do some training, or hell, just going off and buying a loaf of bread and a pat of butter to sit on my own on a bench somewhere and eat the whole thing. But then it starts to rain. And I forgot to bring in dry wood that morning, so when I light the fire, my bardo fills with smoke, and I have nowhere else to go except the big top, all strung up with lights and with a whole line of people huddling under umbrellas, clamoring to get in out of the rain. And even when I walk up to the entrance, I intend to walk right past it and find some warm diner to sit in until the rain stops. But then the irregular running the ticket stand sees me and waves me inside, and then I have no choice. And once I'm inside, all I want to do is duck into some small, darkened corner, but no such corner exists under the big top. Bright with spotlights and strings of lamps and echoing with the stampede of feet and conversation and music. The crowd pushes me along down the aisle and up onto the bleachers. That's when I remember what Nax said about setting aside a seat for me. And when I look for it, there it is. A place a bit out of the way from the main crowd, cordoned off with a string and a hand-printed sign reading, Preserved. No sooner have I taken my seat than the lights go out and the big top plunges into blackness. The crowd hushes. And then, as though planned, Lightning arcs outside, close enough to show through the canvas like a camera flash. Thunder sounds a moment later, cracking the silence. And then the spotlight comes to life, shining a circle on an empty spot in the middle of the ring, into which Nax steps, doffing his cap and bowing to the audience. Welcome, he announces, his voice carrying over the darkened crowd who leaned closer. Nack waits for a few moments before continuing. And even from high up in my seat, I can see him enjoying it. The attention, the small power of commanding a whole tent full of people who have left their homes in warm fires and trudged through the rain, 
just to watch his show. By coming tonight, you've shown taste and wisdom, he continues. For here, in this tent, you have entered a sacred space. Here you will find magic and mystery, the odd and the supernatural. You see, what may be irregular to you is quite normal to us. We who have walked out to the horizon where the known meets the unknown and traveled back to show you what we found. So, without further ado, I welcome you all to the Irregulars Grand Bazaar. Knack throws his hat high into the air. The spotlight follows it for a moment, and just as it reaches its apex, the hat bursts into flames and the lights go out. For a blink of the eye, the flame burns intensely bright and then vanishes. But the darkness lasts only a second before the lights come on again, and when they do, Knack is gone. In his place stands a wagon, the same one we'd all crammed inside of the day Lobo and Cass were killed. The door swings open. From some hidden place comes the familiar sound of Rado's fiddle playing a comical, swingy tune. And through the open door pour dozens of irregulars made up in bright wigs and makeup, emerging as if they had all been crammed in there at once. They tumble and somersault into the ring where they dance and clown and juggle. The crowd laughs and claps along with the song. It's all I can do to not think about that feeling of being crammed against the side of that very wagon, watching the indifferent faces of the people on the street. With the image of Cass's and Lobo's bodies freshly burned onto the back of my eyelids. When I get to thinking like this, it's like I leave my body. I get lost in my memories. And as I get older, I'm finding that it takes me longer and longer to find my way out. One day, maybe I'll have so many memories of all the people and things that I've lost that I won't be able to find my way out again. I like a story that will take me to extremes. And nothing says extreme quite like The Last City, a new Wondery podcast available now. Set in 2072, the city of Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image, which, given its promise of being a miraculous green haven in a climate-ravaged world, shouldn't be too hard to sell, but things are not always as perfect and shiny as we'd like to believe. When she stumbles upon a dark secret that could lead to the downfall of Pura's existence if revealed, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. 
and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. When I come back to my body, the clowns are gone, and the ring is empty save Ferrado, who stands atop a small raised stage. Beside him stands what looks like a coffin. He calls out to the audience for a volunteer, and a hundred hands shoot up at once. He selects a young woman from the crowd. She leaps out of her seat and, nervous but excited, climbs the stage. Rado smiles and kisses her hand. Then he snaps his fingers and the door to the coffin swings open. He directs the woman to step inside. And when she looks at him hesitantly, he smiles and raises his hand to the crowd, which explodes in clapping and whistling, egging the woman on. She bites her lip and enters the coffin. Rado snaps his fingers again and the coffin lid swings closed. But the force of the door closing destabilizes the coffin on the small stage. The entire platform shakes and the coffin rocks dangerously. Rado yells for help and a couple of hooded irregulars hustle from behind the curtain. But it's too late. The coffin falls off the side of the stage. The crowd lets out a collective gasp and when the coffin hits the ground, it splinters into a confetti of wood shards. Rado leaps off the stage and kicks around the debris as though looking for any sign of the girl. Where is she? cries the older woman who'd been sitting next to the girl. At this, Rado turns and smiles, as if he'd only been waiting for the emotion of the crowd to boil over. He extends his hand to one of the hooded irregulars, who takes his hand and allows him to lead her to the front of the stage. Rado pulls back the hood and reveals the young woman. She smiles and nods to Rado, as though to confirm the secret they now share, before running back to her seatmates. The crowd goes wild, and I can't help but stand and clap with them. The spotlights shift to the two platforms, perched atop the tall poles towards the back of the ring. On the platform stand Eos and Zephyr. As soon as the lights settle on them, they throw up their hands and bow to the audience. They don't even give the people a chance to respond before leaping onto the narrow wire spanning the gap between the platforms and running, as easily as if on flat ground, toward one another. They meet in the middle and Eos leaps into the air. Zephyr catches and balances her over his head, his toes gripped like fists to the wire beneath him. He spins and Eos spins overhead like a propeller. They dance like dust devils twirling across the hot pan of the Southland. Dual winds meeting and spinning and then retreating before meeting and spinning again. And when they're done, the crowd is almost exhausted. Some of them shake out the bees in their hands from clapping and they stand and stretch their backs and wait for the irregular selling popcorn to throw them a bag. Nack reappears to announce the intermission before disappearing back behind the curtain. And as soon as he does, a team of irregulars emerges again with beams and planks to start erecting a large stage in the middle of the ring. Emma. I look around for the source of the voice. Down here. I look over the side of the bleachers, and there's Nack, looking up at me, smiling, his hair stuck to his forehead with sweat. What do you think so far? I look away, trying to find the right thing to say, something not too glowing. I shrug. It's good, so far. His smile grows wider, because he can tell I'm trying to play it cool. I got you this, he says, and throws me a bag of popcorn. I catch it. 
But when I look back down to thank him, his attention is drawn somewhere else. The smile is gone, replaced by a hardened expression. I follow his gaze and see a small group of gunslingers dressed in long dusters and vests, arguing with one of the irregulars trying to bar their entrance. Nack hurries over and from where I am, high up on the bleachers, I see the gunslingers register his approach, change their stance, in case he turns out to be a threat and they have to take him out. The youngest of them tenses, his hand flicking toward the handle of his shooter, sticking out from beneath his open coat. I watch as Nack gets in between his man and the gunslingers, waving the irregular off to go cool down. His arms are up where the gunslingers can see them. He smiles and the lead gunslinger seems to relax. Nack directs them to a few seats in the front row and the gunslingers almost begrudgingly sit down. He leaves them there and heads back behind the curtain. The lights lower and the audience starts making their way back to their seats. Nack re-emerges onto the newly constructed stage. And now, he announces, our main event. All your lives, you were raised with legends of the bullet catchers. Some of you might even be old enough to remember the war. As you all know, the bullet catchers were defeated and killed off nearly to a man. But there were those who lived. And in our travels through the deepest reaches of the Southland, we found one. And she has agreed to show us her art, so that when she, and the few others like her, depart this world, there will be a memory of what once was possible. Tonight, I present to you Perhaps the last practitioner of this lost art. Ladies and gentlemen, Mad Mallory, the last bullet catcher. Mal emerges from behind the curtain, looking old, her wild gray hair falling over her shoulders. She faces the crowd like a challenge. There are no cheers or applause, only an uncomfortable hush. Mal says nothing to the audience. She takes her position at one end of the stage. Three irregulars climb the opposite end and make a show of presenting the audience with their shooters, loading a single bullet into each and clicking them closed. Nack stands to one side, as if refereeing. Mallory, are you ready? He shouts. Get on with it, she says, sounding bored. Nack turns to face the firing squad. On my mark, he says raising a hand in the air. Fire! He shouts, dropping his hand. The guns call out their response one after another, bang, bang, bang. The air fills with gun smoke. Mallory, as she's taught me to do, hardly moves. She stands square to the firing squad and when the guns blow, she steps violently forward stamping her foot to the stage, and the bullets drop from the air as if hitting an invisible wall. The crowd doesn't dare so much as breathe. Nack picks up one of the flattened bronze bullets. He holds it up so it catches the light, and then tosses it into the crowd, where a man plucks it from the air and holds it out in the palm of his hand so that all around can see. All this time, I haven't taken my eyes off the gunslingers. They're standing, hands on the butts of the guns in their holsters. It's a trick! Someone in the crowd shouts. Knack waves them off. If you're so sure, why don't you come up on stage and test your aim? 
Hands shoot up, but before Nat can pick anyone, one of the gunslingers climbs the stage. Everyone recognizes her by the uniform, the way she carries herself, but no one seems quite sure if this is all part of the act or a real intervention. The hands lower and everyone stirs in their seats. Whispers roll like the wind over sand, prickling nerves and fear. Shit, I say under my breath. The gunslinger draws her gun and holds up her hand to the audience. Enough, she shouts. Then she turns to Mal and says, Bullet catching is illegal. You are all under arrest on authority of the gunslingers of the Northland. Mal only flicks her hand in the gunslinger's direction, like shooing a gnat. The gunslinger points her gun at Mal. Mal just spits on the ground. Nack takes a step toward the gunslinger, but she turns on him and looks almost eager to shoot. Don't, she says, her voice shaking. This whole operation is illegal. Nack looks toward the audience. Look, he says, turning back to the gunslinger. It's just a trick, a routine. Mal? Nack turns to the bullet catcher. Tell her. Tell her it's all just a trick. Mal looks at Nack like he's a bug she should smash. But then, unexpectedly, she relents. It's the truth. It's just a trick. We do it with blanks, you see. I know a way of finding out just how much of a trick it is, the gunslinger says, pulling the hammer back on her shooter with a deafening click. Don't, is all Nack has time to say before the gunslinger squeezes the trigger. The gunshot echoes over the crowd, bringing a deeper hush to the air inside the big top. Mal doesn't move. The bullet hits her in the stomach, staggering her back. She looks down as the circle of blood spreads across her shirt. Nack runs over to her and catches her before she collapses. She tries her best to look like she doesn't need the help, but even from here I can see she's leaning almost her whole weight on him, and it's all I can do to stay where I am and not run to them. The hush over the crowd extends for a moment more. And then they explode into chaos, shouting and throwing things at the gunslinger. The gunslinger stands there, shocked, before her compatriots get to her and hustle her off the stage and out of the big top, before the audience has a chance to rip them limb from limb. And then I'm pushing my way through the bodies, trying to get to the stage, and by the time I get there, Mal and Nack are gone, with only the pool of blood staining the wood where she'd been standing. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 2 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But 
wait. The excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to Season 1, we are thrilled to announce the launch of Season 2. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make Season 2 even more memorable together. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Marco Palmieri and executive produced by Molly Barton. Performed by Inez Del Castillo. Audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch. Cover art by Christine Barcelona.